0: Now, Heavenly Father, we always confess our great need to have the Holy Spirit's help in understanding these truths which the New Testament tells us are spiritually discerned. So, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would translate these truths, open the eyes of our understanding. You have something to say to everyone. You brought us together. You know who's here, every last soul. And it's with purpose. So help that purpose be achieved um, by our cooperation with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for all the challenges that uh, entailed living in the Old Testament times, there were some positive things, for sure. Uh, In some ways, uh, it was way less complicated And what I mean by that is life was pretty black and white because God gave some very simple prescriptions for happiness. Uh, He said, here's my moral law uh, under this covenant. If you keep it, you'll enjoy blessing. If you break it, you'll be cursed, and you'll be disciplined, and you'll feel it. Deuteronomy 28 says, listen, if you obey the word of the Lord, you'll be blessed at home, you'll be blessed at work, uh, your fight against enemies will be blessed. In short, you will always be on the top and never at the bottom. Um, And then he goes on to say, the Lord will send on you curses, however, if you break his commands and rebel against the Lord and uh, forsake him for other gods. And so now faith was still the only way to be right with God under the Old Testament. You know, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 says that those right with God must live by faith. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham trusted in God, and by that trust, he was made right with God. So uh, as a general rule, however, keeping his commands brought outward prosperity, and forsaking the commands brought devastation. It was really black and white. Now, As a general rule, under the New Testament for Christians, it's true that life goes a whole lot smoother and a whole lot easier when we obey. And we do undergo some discipline uh, when we sin, for sure. But adversity under the New Testament uh, really is independent of good or bad behavior. Uh, That's evidenced by the Apostle Paul's life and all of his struggles. He wasn't out of God's will. He wasn't rebelling, but he had a lot of uh, challenging adversity for sure. And the early church was always going through tough times, uh, not to mention the Son of God and his life. So it's often almost the sign that we're doing something right when we're struggling under the New Testament. So that said, it will be very easy to determine here what's going on uh, as Israel is going to be defeated by the Philistines here in the 11th century before Christ. They've swerved from his commands, and his hand of favor has been withdrawn. So here in First Samuel, the story of corrupt leaders and a rebellious people, and all the chaos in Israel is really serving a purpose. The context, of course, is leaving the dark days of the period of the judges for more hopeful days of the kings, uh, starting with King Saul and then to King David, called the Monarch uh, Period. Now, the Lord's cleaning house, as we've been seeing, he's exposing and removing the corrupt uh, priests uh, and raising up Samuel. He's growing up right now, just for context here. Uh, but these opening chapters are serving a great purpose, and you have to understand uh, the, the narrator is getting us ready for King David. You should be crying out for, a, where is the man after God's own heart is going to rescue us, God's king, to, to battle, uh, for, go out and battle victoriously for us so that we can enjoy God's blessings? Well, we've got 12 more chapters to go before we meet King David. So our context here as we pick up in chapter 4, uh, Samuel's growing up. He's almost grown up all the way. It's time for God to make good his promise to bring judgment on Eli's family for their wicked corruption of the ministry and also on Israel for following in their footsteps. So chapter 4 verses 1 through 3a. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. So now he's the first prophet as well as the last judge. And so he's prophesying and he's teaching and the word is going out and all of Israel's hearing that, that word. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? So let's stop there. And uh, Roman numeral number one, if you've taken notes, asking dumb questions. Now... (laughs) You've heard it said that there's no such thing as a dumb question. Oh, yeah, there is. Um, Questions you ask that you already know the answer to? That's a dumb question. Questions you ask to excuse yourself from blame? That's another dumb question. And so they're playing dumb as a common strategy for God's people who have hardened hearts. Uh, Samuel's growing up, as we've said, uh, with incredible favor and blessing from the Lord. He's becoming a famous prophet. And verse 1 is very important for us to see that the word of God was going forth to all of Israel. So it's very telling how backslidden Israel is and how patient the Lord is, because notice Once again, God is speaking, all Israel is hearing, but nobody's doing anything. They're not listening. This seems to be the problem. Chapter 2, an anonymous man of God came to high priest Eli, delivers a stinging rebuke, terrifying forecast about ripping the priesthood away from Eli and his descendants, and that his two sons, who are corrupt priests that ever were, Hophni and Phinehas, would die, and that on the same day. And all this trouble with Israel being ruled by uh, the Philistines, all prophesied, and what does Eli say or do? Nothing. Chapter 3, young Samuel confirms to the high priest Eli again after uh, the Lord speaks to young Samuel. And and poor Eli is mentoring him in how to bring the message. And then he has to bring a message to say, everything that that man of God said to you is going to happen. What does he say? Well, whatever. Let the Lord be the Lord. He knows what he's doing. Nothing, no repentance, no tears, no action, zero. And then in chapter 4, Samuel's word, as you've just seen in your text, it comes to all of Israel. And uh, trust me, Samuel isn't sending out a seeker-sensitive message. He's not that kind of man. So they all know, they've all heard chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. They know, they hear. God's given them ample warning and instruction. And what do you get? Nothing. And so now it's time for the Lord to act. And so for Eli, his two sons in Israel, it's business as usual. They say, let's go out and fight our enemies without prayer, only presumption. You know, we're the people of God. He's given us all these promises. We can do as we please and still expect his blessing. And uh, Proverbs 29, in verse 1, as I often quote, a person who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Sometimes you can't fix a problem. Uh, You could be restored to the Lord. But uh, the consequences are not uh, changeable, and so the Israelites are defeated. Your text says four thousand soldiers fall, and here comes the foolishness of foolishness. Uh, verse two: the leaders, the elders, are the one posing the question, scratching their heads. Now, why did God let this happen to us? Well, Deuteronomy 28 says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. If you forsake me. So these are the elders who are playing dumb, scratching their heads and, oh, what's wrong, God? What, what happened with you? What's the problem? You know, how did you let this happen? Well, let's see. Why did God let this happen? Well, we've got a full-blown money and sex scandal in the temple of God with as the high priests, the, the self-indulgent fathers letting it all happen, and all of Israel knows, chapter 3, verse 22 says, All of Israel knows. Eli the dad comes to the two priests and say, says to his sons, What's this I hear from all of Israel? So all of Israel knows, but it's cool with all of Israel, because they're corrupt as well. So uh, everybody knows, but nobody will do anything about it. And then when tragedy happens, they want to know, I wonder why God isn't fighting our battles anymore. Eli knows exactly why. Hophni and Phinehas know exactly why. The elders know exactly why. And all of Israel knows exactly why. Great quote here. As far as application goes for us, when life starts to unravel for us, It's a better idea to ask ourselves where we might be going wrong instead of wondering why God is letting us down. It's a better thing to ask in adversity, God, what should I be learning from this instead of God? Why are you treating me this way? And so they go from asking dumb questions to doing dumb things. Verse 3b to 11. So here's their idea. All right, we lost the first time. Let us bring then the Ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas, the two bad boys. Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, right there, for those old enough to remember. And, and, and moving on. We're there with the Ark of the Covenant. It, it's prescribed in the Book of the Law that the two high priests have to carry. All right? So out they go. Verse 5. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into camp, the Philistines were afraid a god has come into the camp. They said, we're in trouble. (laughs) Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. So even they know. Verse 9. Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject. You will become slaves to the Jews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Well, Roman numeral number two, uh, we've seen asking dumb questions, now doing dumb things. Um, Here's what they're thinking. Let's use God to accomplish our purposes. Let's get a religious fix instead of fixing the heart and the relationship. Let's fix the outside and keep things the same on the inside. So... Now, Deuteronomy 20, the Lord speaking through Moses, tells Israel how to go to war. Before going to war, search your heart and confess your sins. Instead, they try to force God's hand by bringing the Ark of the Covenant along. They're thinking, well, it worked for Moses in Numbers 31, and it worked for Josh, Joshua, I should say, chapter 6. Going around the walls of Jericho, they had the Ark. It worked for them, but they're going to find out those two situations were very different from Hophni and Phineas carrying them in unbelief and immorality. And so here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant as we've studied it in great detail in the past. Uh, it is four feet long by two feet wide and high. And those are... Cherubim, the plural of cherub, angelic creatures associated with the throne of God in heaven that surround him in worship and praise. The top of the cover, the the word ark is for box or chest. So ark of the covenant, covenant means the Ten Commandments. So it could be called the box for the commands. Inside are the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his finger into stone, and Aaron's rod that budded, and also a golden jar of manna. Now, it's really just the gospel. That that top cover is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, this ark was in the Holy of Holy Place, and you could only see it One time a year, and only one person ever saw it, was the high priest. On the day of uh, atonement, Yom Kippur, Yom in Hebrew day, Kippur to cover. And so the, the high priest would enter one day a year and sprinkle blood for the sins of the people on top of the cover of the broken commands, And God said, when I see the blood on that seat, there will be mercy. And I speak from that place. And so it was a symbol of God's throne that he was present there. But it's really a picture of the gospel because you've got God enthroned because of the blood. On top of broken commandments, the rod that budded, Aaron had a staff. And to show who had God's favor, the Lord caused the staff to to bud and to blossom, uh, almond blossoms and almonds, uh, a staff, a wooden staff. And so that was also a piece of that was in there. Life from the dead for those who eat the bread from heaven because of the blood. That covers you, atones for you, for your breaking of God's commandments. And so you have the Ark of the Covenant, the heartbeat of worship. Without this, you don't have God in Judaism. You don't have worship. You don't have mercy. You have nothing. This is the the core of God's expression to his people in the Old Testament. So they, the two sinful men, go in on their own accord grab this and say, we'll show those Philistines something else. Deal with this. And so they come running out into the battlefield with the Ark of the Covenant. God didn't tell them to do that. They just said, well, God now has to do something. What's he going to do? Let the Philistines capture his Ark? Maybe he will. (laughs) So uh, they're just trying to force the situation there. Uh, Let's move the box into battle instead of moving our hearts. Toward the Lord. And so, with verse five, great excitement, um, there's the secret weapon. We brought out the nuclear warhead. Take this, Philistines. And they raised their voices up, and there was some reverberation there because how loud. I mean, the the guys saw the ark coming, and they're like, Well, we're saved. And everybody's screaming. And then, uh, verse seven, the Philistines catch wind, it's the ark, oh no, the gods have come down, we're in trouble now. Um, and so uh, they're really clueless as well. They think the gods that busted Israel out of Egypt are now down, but it's really Yahweh. And so instead of dissolving their courage, uh, bring in the ark, really backfired, And it caused the Philistines to really fight or die, kill or be killed. And so 30,000 soldiers are cut down. Among them, the two brothers, Hophni and Phinehas, those scandalous wicked priests, and the Philistines uh, carry off the ark. That's a big deal. Now, the spiritual application really is for us, form without heart is a waste of time. And we're tempted to do this thing. When we're doing our own thing, we might feel a little bit of a pinch. And so we want to kind of get right with God without really changing what the problem is. And so we'll up our Bible reading or increase our church attendance and giving and get involved in serving. But if you don't address the inner problem, then you're going to have a problem. Keep your heart hard, resist God's will, and uh, be out of fellowship with him, but fix some outside things. It won't do you any good at all. So in the New Testament, there's a great application for this. In Acts chapter 19, verses 13 and following, the seven sons of a high priest... Uh, named Sceva. Do you remember this story? Uh, some, I'll read it to you. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits and tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over some demon-possessed. Now we're in the New Testament, right? They would say, in the name of, the, of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Well, these seven sons were doing this, and one day the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus, I know. And I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, these guys came in, they don't have a connection themselves, but they think hey, uh, we've seen this done. So in in the name of the Jesus, that Paul, that Paul knows you. And and he, it seems to work for him. And this seems like a really good formula. I'm going to try this out. And so that's really what was happening. Now, when Moses and Joshua took the ark out, they were in right relationship. Their hearts, uh, the spirit was moving in their hearts as well as moving the ark of the covenant. And so uh, chapter, this same chapter, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Now, verse 12. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and the dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who is 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. In other words, he was almost blind. Verse 16, he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I, I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines. And the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel forty years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So Roman numeral number three, the sad report, the outcome of the battle comes to Eli, the high priest and all the towns folks there at Shiloh uh, from the battle, 20 miles away, a runner comes and you could tell it's going to be bad news when there's dirt on the head. They would throw dirt on their heads and tear their clothes in mourning. Verse 12 tells you that he comes there from uh, the battlefield and the, he, the messenger holds nothing back. Verses 14 through 17, a great slaughter, Uh, 30,000 people have died. Your sons are dead, Eli, and the ark is captured. Interestingly, Eli's concern about the ark seems more important than his two wicked sons. And now, perhaps he's kind of faced the reality and anticipated the loss of those two boys because the Lord has told him twice in miraculous ways, the boys' lives are going to end. And so he's come to terms with that. Uh, Really, the news that the faithless, pagan, godless enemies, the Philistines, took the Ark of the Covenant to do with who knows what and to take who knows where, that was more than the old man's heart could bear. He had a heart attack or a stroke. He falls over. And, you know, he carries, he falls under the weight The extra weight he carries as a result of overindulgence made possible because his sons were stealing the Lord's offerings and he was tolerating. He did a lot of whining, but he also did a lot of eating. Of those offerings. And the Lord pointed that out in previous chapters that he would talk a lot, but he would still allow it to happen because he didn't want to confront them because it would mean giving up the offerings that he too were enjoying, even though they were stealing those offerings. And so Eli can bear the loss of a battle, he can bear the loss of a family member, Uh, but how do you handle the idea that God is gone? How do you handle that? It's the disciples who see Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who walked on the water and, and told the hurricane to be quiet, and it was dying on the cross, gasping for air, and then a lifeless body. A soldier piercing his side, and blood and water coming out. There's the Messiah, the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Telling Jesus himself, who's resurrected the whole story, oh, we had really hoped. And Jesus says, boy, I've never seen two guys more dejected. And your face is so downcast. What's your problem? And they say, we had hoped. He was the son of God, and they killed him. They took God away. What are we going to live about? That's the feeling here. The Philistines took God In a sense, God, of course, is still on the throne in heaven. But while the ark's in temporary custody of the bad boy Philistines, for all intents and purposes, uh, all hope is gone. How do you get forgiven? How do you approach God? How do you hear his voice? This is the way you do it, he said. Apart from that ark, you've got nothing in Judaism. Now the Philistines got control of it. Poor Phineas's wife, you know, verse 19, she's pregnant. She's probably seven or eight months along. She hears the death of her husband, the death of her brother-in-law, the death of her father-in-law, and 30,000 of uh, the Hebrew soldiers and the capture of the ark. And she goes into premature labor. She hears the news. Hey, you're having a son. Come on. Pull it together. You're going to make it. And she's despondent. She's lost the will to live. She says, name him Ichabod. Where's the glory? The glory has gone. The ark is gone, Ichabod. Now, I wouldn't recommend that as a baby name, because you know what they're going to call him? They're going to call him Icky. Seriously. In the Hebrew, kavod, the glory. A very interesting word in Hebrew, it means heaviness. It means this blended, uh, magnificent, majestic weightiness. The, the, the life force, the presence, the prestige of God. So the, the name is implying where, where, did that, where did he go? He's gone. Where is he? And, you know, there's always a good answer to Ichabod in your life. When, when God feels distant, who moved? Return, faithless people, I will cure you of your backsliding. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 22. I love this quote. Let me read it to you. In the Christian life, in our journeys, we sometimes must hear the word Ichabod applied to some area of failure or sin. Sometimes it's our doing and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's been done to us. Ichabod, all is lost, the beauty's gone, hope of restoration so dim, but then with a renewed desire to trust and obey comes the eternal spark of new life and breath from God that brings miraculous hope of restoration. Ichabod never need be the last word spoken over any Christian's life. And uh, if you were at the baptism, you would have heard a lot of stories about former Ichabod namings and now with new life. Well, the bad boy Philistines have captured the ark. Now they need a place to park it. The next chapter is just just so short and so entertaining. I'm just going to read through it really fast because you want to know where they parked it, right? Because where they parked it is a lot of fun. Not not for Dagon, the god who gets parked by, but uh, let's take a look at that, all right? After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple. Dagon as their god. They have a nice statue of him. Uh, Dagon's temple, and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early in the, in the morning the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Hmm, imagine that. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So, Roman numeral number four, fun with Dagon, <laughs> the god of the Philistines. Now, Dagon was thought to be the father of Baal, or better pronounced Baal. His image was half fish and half man. Um, fish because of the ability for the fish to multiply by the thousands. Therefore, he was the multiplier of all life and blessing. We have a picture of what he may have looked like. How lovely. I enter into your courts with thanksgiving and into your house with praise. (laughs) I don't think so. Yeah. So it was a good uh, little fish monster head mask. All right. So thank you for that. I hope nobody got scared. Too scared. Uh, The Ark is parked next to that guy. All right. And when you parked it beside, it was a trophy. It was saying, "Look what we got for you." We bring him, uh, the God of the Hebrews, before you, and in, in submission to you as a trophy. And so they get up and imagine their surprise when they find their God on his face worshiping before the God of the Hebrews. So they think, you know, I, you know, was there an earthquake last night? There probably was a little tremor. You know, was it windy? It was windy, even though it's very heavy. You know, oh, that must have happened. Let's just, as you have to do with any dead idol, you have to prop it back up because it can't stand up by itself. So you have to help your god up. <laughs> so they help their god up and they go nai again and they come in in the morning and guess what? It's even worse. He's worshiping again, but this time he's dismembered. <laughs> the head's cut off and the hand's cut off. Listen to this. The head is the seat of wisdom to the ancients. The hands, the instruments of action, both are cut off to show that he has neither wisdom nor strength to defend himself nor his worshipers. And so you're probably thinking, you know, why not turn from your weak, false, stone, fake, fish head monster God to the true God? Well, you know what? It's not that easy. They would rather prop him up and glue him back together than change the order of their lives. They'd rather believe in a fish head freak monster than to bow the knee to God and say that I need inner transformation and I need a savior. And so did you notice what they do? Instead of turning to Yahweh, uh, they get superstitious and, and create a religious tradition. After that time, no priest of pagan priests would step on the threshold because that was the sacred place where their fallen statue, the hands, ended up on the threshold. So for hundreds of years, these guys never would go on the threshold. You know that old thing, don't step on a crack in a sidewalk or you'll break your mama's back or whatever? This was, don't step on the threshold or you'll break our God's back. You know, that... that, I told you it was dumb, didn't I? <laughs> the Lord was speaking once again. No, no one's listening. They just say, okay, we got this. We're going to step over the threshold ever so carefully. So he says, okay, I got to turn up the volume. Let's finish the chapter. The Lord's hand was heavy. There it is. Kavod. He's getting the glory. The glory is coming back here. Uh, The Lord's hand was heavy, gloriously, upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Uh, When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is gloriously heavy, weighty glory upon us and upon Dagon, our God. (laughs) So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Yeah, let's not submit to him when we can get rid of him. So we're going to get rid of him, but we're not going to submit. That doesn't occur to them. Maybe we should all bow like our God did to him. Uh Uh-uh. No. Reading on. They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath, another one of their towns. Maybe it's just a coincidence, you know. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. You'll notice the Lord's hand is mentioned because their God had his hands cut off. This is a God who has hands and will use them when he needs to. So there are the hands and the glories mentioned here. Uh, He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. We're going to talk about that next week, what that is. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another, a third Philistine city. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. They used the improper pronoun there. It's not it. It's he. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very gloriously weighty, heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So last point, return to sender. Um, Why submit to the Lord when you can just send him out of your life? So since they missed the first clue with Dagon, the Lord brought his message home through a sorts of plagues, a terrible outbreak here. They connect the dots. They're saying, Well, let's try over here, and it happens again, and then a third time. And so uh, he's gaining glory against the Philistines, and the cries go up to heaven. But sadly, the cries are not of repentance necessarily, they're just cries to get us out of this jam. As the Egyptians did, they cried out, but not a lot of repentance. Now, you know, as God always will do, he gets his way with Egypt and in the Great Tribulation, he's going to bring down a heavy hand. The last seven years, the last three and a half years, are going to be awful here. The church is said to have been taken away, and then judgment falls. And it says in Revelation, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. This is just one of many ways they're going to suffer. They were seared by the intense heat, and they, were, and they cursed the name of God, crying out to heaven, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. There's the word again. That, that weighty glorifying of God. They refused to do it. They cry out, But they refused. Now, let me show you a bumper sticker that somebody has invented. Just leave the lights on. We don't need the lights to go off. Thank you. So this is invented by somebody who's playing the the Jesus fish, Darwin fish war back and forth, right? This is from somebody who knows the Old Testament enough to know this story and to know that Dagon is a half-fish, half-man, God of the Philistines. And so they're saying, we side with Dagon. That's what they're saying to all the Christians who have the Christian fish. You see? We live in a world that's not very much different then 3,000 years ago, 3,100 years ago, there were people who said, you know what, we're, we're sticking with this guy. Doesn't matter. Send the other guy away. We want this one. So what? His head's broken off. We'll say, we'll superglue it back on, all right? Because he, he serves our purposes. We can have our sin and do our own thing. And that's the world that we live in. But thankfully, the grace of God That has appeared to us in God's kindness, has softened our hearts, and changed us, and made us from unbelievers to believers, transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, by the grace of God. In love, predestining us to be different, to have a different response. But there, there. But the grace of God. Go any of us with a bumper sticker of, of opposition to God and the truth, and those seeds are in all of our hearts. And whenever I rebel or wanna do my own thing, I think it's a little bit of a seed of that kind of thinking and that kind of life. And I want nothing to do with that. I want to be sold out, filled with the Holy Spirit, doing God's will, enjoying God's blessing. And then when that blessed day comes and the trumpet sound uh, goes off and the dead in Christ rise and we who are alive are changed and caught up to be with the Lord forever, then we have no regrets. We enter that kingdom Uh, Shoulders back and unashamed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace and your power and your glory. Father, thank you for your endless mercy and your faithful love. And Whenever we've fallen into trouble and It seems like the glory has departed. Father, we cry out to you in in humbleness of heart, trusting and obeying as your dearly loved children, and you always bring life and grace and redemption. We're so grateful for that and the hope that we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.